Well, good morning, Trinity Church. My name is this older guy in Israel. He's never married. He's kind of, he's a big landowner, and, and he is uh, kind toward Ruth as she's gleaning at the edge of his fields. And you'd be right. But what we don't realize about Ruth is that it is a, a book of the Bible it, that is very, very different. It's one of the most amazing books because of uh, all the books in the uh, entire scripture, only two of them are named after women, right? What's the other book? Esther. But Ruth and Esther are two very different women. Esther was a faithful Jewish woman in exile, and God puts her in a position of authority and says, you need to defend my people. Even if it costs you your life, you need to do this. And she faithfully steps up to the task. Ruth is not a faithful Jew, not by a long shot. In fact, throughout the book of Ruth, she has a subtitle to her name, and she's called Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Now, if you know anything about uh, Israel and its geography, uh, Moab was at the southwest portion of the land of Canaan. It wasn't in the land of Canaan, but it's right next to it by the Dead Sea, and you can see the red line there is actually the line we're going to talk about this morning as Elimelech, or Elimelech, as he was known in Hebrew, takes his family from Israel and heads to Moab. This is where he meets Ruth. At least one of his sons does, Kalon. And uh, Moab has a horrific history. This is a, a country that, when you look at the Bible, is never spoken of faithfully, uh, favorably. Never. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 19, you notice the history of Moab, where it all started was right after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God. And Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, is living in that area, and Abraham says, God, you got to deliver Lot. And so Lot is spared. He and his family, his wife dies because she looks back and, and desires actually to still be there, but she dies, and, and Lot and his two daughters head to the hills. And they end up living in a cave. And the daughters look around at all of the devastation, the sulfur, the fire, everything that's been destroyed, and they say, the world has ended. How are we going to have a family? And so they get their dad drunk, and they become pregnant by their dad, and the first of the two boys that are born is named Moab. The other is named Ben-Ami, out of which the Ammonites come. So here you have Moab, and then at the top of your screen, Ammon. These two nations that grew out of these, these boys' lives. And the very beginning, if you look at chapter 1 of Moab's history, it's titled Incest. Not a great beginning for a nation. You go on to uh, the book of Numbers, and as Egypt is escaping out of, or Israel is escaping out of Egypt, they head up toward the land, and they're thinking of going through Moab. But um, the king of Moab is not interested in having this horde of people tramping through his country, so he hires a local um, magician, a, a local prophet named Balaam. You, know, you familiar with Balaam? So he's, he's kind of like um, this guy who is, is very powerful by reputation, and Balak hires him to curse Israel. And God says, no, we're not doing that. Instead, you have to bless Israel. And it's so frustrating for Balaam, who really kind of wants to get his peace out of the action. And, and so at the end of the day, he can't curse Israel, but he comes to Balak, the king of Moab, and he says, look, here's what you do. You throw this big party, get all of your young Moabite women to invite a lot of the young Jewish guys, seduce them, 
and bring them over to the gods of Moab. And that's what happens. So these young men lose their virginity and they lose their faith. And God looks at that and he says, this is not good. Well, you go further on into their history and you find that uh, after uh, Canaan was finally conquered and, and you get into the judges era, you find a uh, king there by the name of Eglon, the king of Moab, who dominates Israel for 18 years. And finally, this left-handed judge, Ehud, assassinates him, and Israel is freed from his domination. And then you get to the god of Moab. His name was Chemosh. And for sacrifice, the Jewish people would bring a lamb, a pure, innocent lamb. For sacrifice, they had to bring a live child. And it was child sacrifice. And they would burn this child alive in the arms of Chemosh. And that was what their faith called them to. And so you look at Moab and you think, gosh, this is not a good heritage for Ruth, right? This is exactly the kind of thing you wouldn't want a person who is going to be a part of Israel's history. By the way, she's the great-grandmother of King David. You wouldn't want that kind of history being brought into the pure Jewish faith. But the beautiful thing about the book of Ruth is that God takes outsiders, people who might want to be a part of God's story, a part of his kingdom, despite their history, despite the things that have gone on in their culture, how they've been impacted and influenced. And God brings them close, and he loves them with this incredible love that's described in the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth is a book of suffering, too. There are 85 verses in the book of Ruth. <clears throat> 55 of them, over 60%, are about suffering. People hoping for deliverance from suffering. So I want you to picture this morning, when you think about the book of Ruth, our, our typical um, way of thinking about it is it's a great love story, and it is. But it's also a great story of how do you deal with crisis in your life? How does God intervene in those moments of crisis and difficulty? And how is his love displayed? So would you also today, having thought a little bit about what you know about Ruth, would you think about the struggles in your life right now? What are the circumstances in your life that are pinching, that you're feeling weighted by, you're struggling with? Because I want you to see how Ruth would have felt about this as she came to God. Ruth is such a great example of love <clears throat> that <clears throat> the Jewish people have placed the book of Ruth in a different place than your Bible. So where do you find the book of Ruth? By the way, if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, would you open to Ruth? In the English Bible, we have, <clears throat> have them come, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? In the Hebrew Bible, the Ben Asher version of the Bible that is read for them, the Hebrew Bible read for them at their festivals, does not put Ruth after Judges. It puts it after Psalms, Proverbs, Ruth. Why would they do that? Well, what is Proverbs 31? It's the story of a godly, loving wife. And, and the Jewish people would read Proverbs 31. They'd go, gosh, I wish I could see an example of that. Well, here, here's Ruth, right? And they read the book of Ruth. So it is a great story of love. In fact, we're going to find in this uh, book that God describes his kind of love. 
So if you ever have wanted to experience the love of God in your life, today you're going to get a list of descriptions of God's, what he calls hesed, love. That's the Hebrew term for his loyal love. I had a friend at Moody Bible Institute. He had been in the Navy, come out of a really rough background, had come to faith in Christ actually in the bathroom on a Navy ship one day. God just got a hold of him and he said, I need Jesus. His first child, do you know what he named her? Hesed. To remind him every time he called her, Hey, Hesed, would you mind cleaning up your room? Hey, loyal love. So we're going to see that this morning, but I want to point out to you four things in the book of Ruth as we begin to get into this chapter one that are very important for us to grasp. And and I'm not going to take this uh, verse one through the end of the chapter uh, to uh, verse uh, 32. There we go. I didn't bring my cheaters this morning. So we're not going to go linearly. I want to move back and forth a little bit for you to get a feel for this. So let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll take a look at it. Heavenly Father, thank you for Ruth. Thank you that she understood from Naomi's life, however she saw Yahweh, the Father in Naomi's life, that she responded. Father, she repented of her past. She said, I'm done with Moab. I'm done with Chemosh. I'm done with all of the history of this nation in which I've grown up. I choose God. Father, as we see that message, and as we see the struggle that really surrounded all of uh, this processing and thinking. Help us to understand, Father, that in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our culture and our world, we can choose God, and we can experience your said, your loyal love. So teach us, Father, as we go through this passage. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have your sermon notes, by the way, and if you don't, they're online. You can grab them there. Because I want you to, when we get to the loyal love of God, I want you to write down the description of it. There's a number of factors. But we're going to begin in verse 1. And it says, In the days when the judges ruled. Now you should pause there for just a moment, because it's talking about judges, the book of judges. And you may not be very familiar with that, but we're going to look a little bit at it. What did that mean? But it says, In those days when the judges ruled. So this is after Joshua. It's after the conquest of the land. Joshua's died, a new generation has arisen. There was a famine in the land. Now those two are connected in the minds of the author and in God's description to us. There's the time of the judges, and there's a famine. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Basically, he decided to hire a B&B, Airbnb over in Moab. He's going to stay there a short period of time, just enough time to get some food, and then we'll come back. He and his wife and his two sons. Now, the name of the man was Elimelech. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And the name of his wife was Naomi, which means pleasant one. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian, weak and frail. (laughs) How many of you would choose that as a name for your kid? Ah, this is my son, weak, and this is my son, frail. But remember, it's the time of the judges. And whether that refers to their physical way that, you know, they came into the world and there were some struggles and maybe some disabilities, whatever it might be, it plays into this story. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and they remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, 
They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons or her husband. So this is taking place in a specific period of time. It's always important to understand, where is the story happening? This is in the days of the Judges. So Judges chapter 2, we're going to put it up on the screen for you here. I want you to get a sense for what he's moving out of and what he's hoping for. Judges chapter 2, verse 6 says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. You might underline that last phrase. Who had seen all of the great work that God had done for Israel. They were first-hand reporters of what God had done physically with Israel. And so they all pass away. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, dies at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them. Notice the description. Who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Parents, grandparents, this is our job with our kids. God has given this as the task to us. Tell them about God and all that he has done for you, just as these individuals should have done with their next generation. But these, these young people grew up. They didn't know God. They didn't know what he had done. And it says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, the Canaanite gods. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of these surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. The book of Judges covers 340 years. Now that's one quarter of Israel's history. One quarter of their national history is this story of rebellion against God and sin and evil and God rescuing them finally and they come back to normal and then they do it again. They have this sin cycle going on. And in the midst of all of this, is the story of Ruth that is embedded. In fact, we find out, and we'll talk about that in a minute, it's actually at the time of Gideon's story. So if you think of Gideon and his band of 300 and how God used them to defeat the Midianites, in Gideon's era, there was this same famine. And so we, we put Ruth right into there, and we recognize this beautiful idea that purity can exist next to putridity. That's a really interesting word. It means that which is foul. Rubbish. So you can have purity in the midst of rubbish. You can have wholesome beliefs being lived out along horrific behaviors. And Ruth's story resounds with the answer to the question, can a Christian live a loving and pure life in an increasingly violent and vicious world? Can that actually be done well? 
And Ruth's answer is absolutely. Listen to what Paul writes about our world today. This was true partly in his time, but he says at the end of time, this is what the world will look like. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 3. Folks, don't be naive. There are difficult days ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to dust, uh, addicted to lust, and allergic to God. You can see where I got the dust from. Addicted to lust and allergic to God. And they make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. That's the message translation. Paul says, you know, in, in the Christian realm, as we think about the world that encompasses us, as we get closer to the end of time, and folks, I, I truly believe we are getting closer and closer to that moment when Jesus Christ comes back. That's going to be our world. Can we live this holy and pure life in that kind of world? Absolutely. And we're going to see some ways that we can do that this morning. So it's in this setting that Elimelech lives. Now, his name is very interesting. Eli is the Hebrew for my God, and Melech is the word for king. So his parents named him specifically, my God is my king. You remember the mantra of Judges? In those days, there was no king, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That was the mantra of the book of Judges. And his parents, in the midst of Gideon's experience, the midst of the book of Judges, have this baby boy, and they say, we're going to name him, my God is my king. They were faithful, godly parents. We're given the name, both here at the end of Ruth, of the, the dad, and in Matthew 1, we're given the mom's name. Here in, in Ruth, the name of the dad is Salmon, and in Matthew... Elimelech's mom's name is Rahab. Anybody heard of Rahab? That was his mom. Can you imagine the bedtime stories? Mom, tell us the time about how, how you hid the spies up on the top of your house. And, and, oh, and tell us the time about how, how the walls fell down, right? And what, what an amazing, historical, Christian, godly perspective she would have embedded in these boys. Boaz was one of his kinsmen. He probably heard the stories too. They were part of the same clan, the same group, type family group. And so he's given this really amazing title, name. He grows up, he marries, and then famine hits the land. Moms, dads, you ever had that moment in your life that was just really hard financially? And you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure how we're going to make this. We've got to tighten our belt. My gas bill last month was 600 instead of 120. I'm going, whoa, where did that come from, right? You all probably had some of the same responses. He's looking around at his world and he's going, things are not good here in Israel. In fact, Bethlehem, where he lived, was the name of Bethlehem meant house of food. Of all places, he's having a famine. If you've ever been in a position like that, you probably have asked yourself, what am I going to do? What would you do? What would he do? Well, it's interesting that in 
Judges, excuse me, in Deuteronomy, God told them what to do. Whenever you see a famine in the land, this is what you do. Deuteronomy 11, we'll have it on the screen. He says, it shall come about. If you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle. You will eat and be satisfied. Beware, he says in verse 16, that your hearts are not deceived that you don't turn away and serve other gods and worship them. What's going on in Judges? They're turning away from God. They're serving other gods. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. The ground will not yield its fruit. You will perish quickly from the land, the good land which the Lord is giving you. What is Elimelech's or Elimelech's solution here? Anybody? What should he do? Well, first of all, he should have known Deuteronomy, right? His mom and dad probably taught him that. Salmon, Rahab, faithful, godly parents. What he should have done is repented and said, God, we, I, my nation are not following you. And so you've shut up the heavens and the ground is dried up and we do not have the food that we need. Personal repentance, personal obedience, personal service to the Lord. God's response to our needs is always spiritually originated. It always comes from the heart. And by the way, I think that's God's solution to all the kinds of famines that we have in our world today, in, in our own lives, is to come back to him and say, God, how can I follow you? How can I worship you better? How can I obey you more? But Moab was a convenient solution, just 50 miles down the road up around the Dead Sea and on down. They had food. And so Elimelech chooses that as the wrong solution. One of the commentators I read this week said, the lesson for each of us to learn is that pressures and trials wrought by the famines in our life are sovereignly sent or allowed by God. Not to destroy us, but to humble us and to teach us to trust in Jehovah with all of our heart and not to lean on our own understanding but in all of our ways to acknowledge him, fully confident that he will make our path straight. So instead of running, he needed to repent. Great needs often promote temporary departures from God's purpose. When you and I look at our lives, we can have some great needs come into our lives. And they will always push us in the direction of the practical solution. What can I go and do? What can I think about this? How can I respond? And what God would have us say is, what does God want me to do in response to this great need? Secondly, temporary departures often lead to feelings of resentment toward God. Let's take a moment and refresh our thoughts about what's happened so far. We've got a video series we're going to be playing a little bit every week, and it's actually shot in Israel. The uh, actors and actresses speak in Hebrew. It's subtitled, but you will see visually on the screen a little bit of Ruth and Naomi's story to this point. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled 
that there was a famine in the land of Judah. Elimelech and his wife Naomi left Bethlehem and journeyed to Moab, about a three or four day trek through the rugged mountains and arid plains surrounding the Dead Sea. And they were joined by their two sons, Malon and Kilion. Now Naomi and her two sons dwelled in the land of Moab for 10 years. Kelion married Orpah, and his brother Malone married a woman named Ruth. And Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died there in Moab, leaving Naomi alone with little more than memories of the way things used to be. And Ruth's husband, Malone, died in Moab, as did Kilion, Orpah's husband. Hearing that the famine in Judah has passed, Naomi and her daughters-in-law begin their journey to Bethlehem, Judah. Each step brings Naomi closer to home, but further from her closest loved ones, now laid to rest in a foreign land. Verse 11 of Ruth, chapter 1 says, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go in your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, no, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me. Look at that phrase. It is exceedingly, exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 19 continues the story. It says, so the two of them went on. This is now Naomi and Ruth until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came there, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman, women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi. Why would you do that when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Who was really to blame here? God or Elimelech? That was Elimelech. He made the decision. We need to go to Moab. We need to find food. 
and he takes his family down there. But who is Naomi mad at? She's mad at God. And so often in life, the things that we encounter can drive us to the question, why didn't God prevent this? How could he allow this, right? Have you ever asked that question or heard someone else say that? We take the moments of our struggle and our circumstances and we push them beyond the choice of humanity to God, ultimately. And so she's dealing with this this bitterness in her heart and she hears that God has visited once again Judah and Bethlehem. That word visited means to pay attention to, to notice, to be aware of. Interestingly, when you go to the New Testament and Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which we're going to celebrate soon, he's at the edge of the city and he looks down at the city and he begins to weep. You remember that? Why is he weeping? He says, it's because you, Jerusalem, do not recognize the day of God's visit to you. Same words. God visited Bethlehem and brought food again. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, presents himself as God, visits with them, saying, I'm aware of your need, I'm aware of your circumstances, and they don't recognize it. And in her case, it's a positive thing. She responds and she says, we need to go back. But in doing so, notice the thing she says against God. His hand has gone out against me. He has dealt bitterly with me. He has brought me back empty. He has testified against me. He has brought calamity against me. This wasn't his doing. It was the Lemelechs. David Atkinson, one of the authors I looked at this week, had a really interesting perspective. He says, Naomi's men had died, and so had their names. The author is here piling up one disaster on another in Naomi's life, giving us, his readers, a sense of shock that one person should be called on to suffer so much. Surely it was undeserved, surely unexpected. Are we not introduced here to the dark side of God's providence, that some of our pains seem unbearable, some of our circumstances so unjust, and some of our questions without answers? She was bitter about her widowhood. She was bitter about her motherhood. And I think she was probably bitter about her grandmotherhood, which she would never see. And so in that bitterness, she tries to change her name from pleasant to bitter. Now, interestingly, in the storyline, God doesn't let her do that because the rest of the book refers to her as Naomi, not Mara. Thirdly, and this is where God's love comes in, his great love beckons us back to him. Look at verses 6 through 9. She hears... about the food back in Bethlehem, and it says she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. She had heard in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly. Underline that. That's your word, has said. May the Lord has said you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You've you've loved me, but may God's loyal love be given to you. May the Lord grant that you will find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So here we find out that when Elimelech left and ran, others stayed and repented. 
and saw once again God's goodness to their lands and to their harvests. God had paid attention to his people. And the idea of, of visiting is so powerful. Think about your circumstances, right? And how what we're looking for is change. So, there's a crack in my wife's windshield right now. Driving behind a truck, boom. You know the story. There's this crack. It's creeping across the bottom of her windshield. And then it gets really cold and snow, right? Creeps a little bit more. What am I going to do about it? Well, I haven't done anything yet. It's been kind of crazy. <laughs> but I'm going to call in a windshield specialist, right? I'm going to get it fixed. I'm going to do the, the natural, practical things. Well, when it comes to the heart issues, when it comes to the spiritual issues, God says, I want you to look at this differently. I want you to see me visiting with you. I want you to know I'm aware of your need. I want you to think about the fact that I'm going to pay attention to your life. And so what she didn't hear was, hey, the weather has changed and we have food. And she didn't hear, oh, the Midianites are now all gone, who were devastating the land. Or the economy has finally turned around. We've got the right political party in, in place, right? Or whatever it might be. God was at work helping his people. And the calming of her turbulent heart is seen in verses 8 and 9. Look at that. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May he have his said love. And this is, by the way, the first mention of God's loyal love. And it's the most expansive picture of it in the entire Old Testament, right here. So let me give you the 10, I think there's 10, what do we got? Yeah, 10 aspects of his said love. You ready? And as you hear these, by the way, think about your relationship with God and his love for you. This is what he wants to do in your life. So number one, Hesed is based on relationship. It's not a sterile activity that is done for somebody just to help them out. It's a relationship. It's a covenant relationship, much like marriage or, or like being a partner in the life of a church. It's dedication to an individual for the specific purpose of helping them. It's an abiding loyalty. Number two, it's an emotional term. It speaks of why a person is acting to help with the needs of another person. Why are they doing what they're doing on behalf of them? And this was the heartbeat of Ruth's statement of the willingness to take care of Naomi. When she talks to Naomi, she's saying, hey, I am emotionally connected to you, and I'm going to help take care of you. said is an action. It's never just a promise. It looks at the need of a person and says, I will do something about that. And God looks at you, and he has the same perspective. I will take care of my people as they follow me. said benefits people always who are weaker, always the person who is struggling due to their situation in life. And so God works through Boaz. This is where we also see said love. He works through Boaz's concern for Naomi and Ruth. They're the weaker individuals. He's going to reach out and help them. And it's a voluntary action. It's not something that is uh, forced. It's this extraordinary mercy, uh, great generosity that voluntarily wells up in the life of a person in their heart. It can't be forced. If it is, it's not his said love. And remember, folks, God is not forced to love us. He delights to do so. It's expected, by the way, this is interesting, it is expected of those who have a prior relationship with a person who is in a desperate need. So if you have a family member, you have somebody um, that you have this relationship with, a friendship, 
It is expected by God that you would express this kind of loyal love to them. You can't just stand back and say, well, I will pray for you, like James says, and then do nothing. But to get involved with them. Number seven, it's a clear model. God is the clear model of his said love. So if you want to know what love is, go to the scriptures and look how he deals with his people, kindly, graciously, mercifully, again and again and again. And his said love precedes and provides the action for God's act of covenant. So when God makes a covenant to you, and he says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's part of his his said love. It's an expression of his covenant, and it precedes and provides the traction for him to do something for you because he loves us. And his said is mutual. Those who receive it are expected to give it. Pay it forward. How has God loved you? Pause for a minute. Let's, let's take just a second and think. Hopefully you're thinking all the time, but let's do it intentionally right now. How has God loved you? Write down one or two ways that you've experienced the love of God in your life. Has he met a need? Has he spoken to you in the midst of a question mark? God, I don't know what to do next. And he gives you his wisdom. Has he provided relationships for you that are meaningful, substantial, encouraging and uplifting. Folks, this is why you come to church, by the way. Did you know that? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another more as you see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. This is why we come together, is to have those relationships to uplift each other and to encourage each other. And so God pours his love into Naomi's life, in the midst of all of this junk, brings a relationship with this dear young woman who covenants herself to Naomi, and Naomi, in the midst of that, feels the love of God. May God's has said love deal with you kindly as you have dealt with me and the dead. Number four. Loyal love is God's cure. resentment and emptiness so when we encounter people in our world today who do feel resentful and maybe we've felt that way at times who feel empty or bitter who are struggling with life God's love is the cure for this look at verses uh, 14 through 19 they lifted up their voices and wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law this is on the road going back to uh, Bethlehem But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. I have one of my daughters who gives what we call her hugs. How many of you are hugging people? I was not raised in a hugging family. We hardly ever really told each other, hey, I love you, Doug. And we knew it was true, and occasionally we'd hear it. But for some reason, God has given my wonderful daughter this ability to hug, you know? And, and so I'll, I'll give her a hug. And then you pat out, you know? Okay, okay, I think I'm done. No, no, no. Okay, okay, we're done, we're good, you know? Nope. There is a feeling that comes from 
having that kind of embrace. And Ruth clings to her mother-in-law, both physically as well as emotionally. And, and she says to her this amazing statement, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Do you hear the, the shift in her environment, in her purposing, in every aspect of her life? She says, it doesn't matter. Wherever you walk, I'm going to walk. Wherever you stop, I'm going to stop. Whatever people you surround yourself with, that's going to be my people. New friends, new environment. Your God, my God. And at the end of it, she says, where your bones are, my bones are going to be. Would you call that total commitment? Yeah, I would. Naomi looked at this and she felt it as kindness, but it was truly the love of God. It went far beyond that. It was this unwavering commitment that was based on the way God acts toward people who come to him. I've been meeting off and on with uh, different folks in the church and just enjoying it. And I met with uh, Bill Bourne Sr., and we were just talking about this whole idea of, of love and, and covenant. And he said, hey, could I share with you a letter I wrote to my, uh, my boys, son, son-in-laws? Son and I said, yeah, I'd love to hear it. It's entitled, It Never Quits. And, and Bill, you may remember this. Um, he says, the real life issues you have either never end or you wish they would never end. Right? The good ones. Without doubt, we've had many life experiences. You can make your own list. It's a fun experience. I invite you to try it. And he made a list of things in his life. And I asked him this morning or yesterday if I could share this. He said, yeah, fine. Plumbing needs, peeling paint, vehicle maintenance, endless relational matters, others' expectations, spiritual longings, electrical problems, cleaning, 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 needy children's requests, unexpected financial needs, mounting work, too little time, never-ending bills, the Falling apart, loose chair. I would love to hear that story, by the way. Go wherever you are. Constant demands on your time. Family feuds, physical, medical issues, endless yard work. Caring for one matter is too quickly followed by another and another, and you finally say, give me a break. When will this constant chain of demands stop? He felt a little bit like Naomi. All this stuff happening in her life. Hers were huge rather than a bunch of little things. He says, you ask what else never quits? All the stuff mentioned above never quits, but neither does God's love. Faithfulness, care, attentiveness to the details in the lives of his children. Now, this is not only words and ideas. God's character assures us of many significant, never-ceasing truths, and you'll be familiar with most of them. There are too many to include here, but let me include Lamentations 3.22 and 24 which says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And in Psalm 136, again, it echoes the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Ruth demonstrates a love for her mother-in-law that is far beyond what her culture could give her. 
Would you agree with that? Hearing a little bit about Moab, this isn't coming out of her environment. This is coming out of her witnessing Naomi's life and how she deals with the struggles and how Naomi must have given her a glimpse of Yahweh. Because when she says, your God is going to be my God, boy, she takes that to heart. And folks, this is her moment of repentance, of saying the struggles of life are going to constantly push me toward bitterness and resentment. I'm not going to blame my husband. I'm going to blame God, who doesn't deserve it. But God says, look, in the midst of this, I'm going to be faithful to you. I am going to love you, and I am going to take care of you. And, and Ruth begins to exemplify that for us. And we'll look more at that in the weeks to come. Here are some closing thoughts from Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite theologians. He says, when troubles come to our lives, we can do one of three things. We can endure it, escape it, or enlist it. You might write those down for yourself, because when you encounter troubles, these are the three things you can choose to do. You can endure the hardships of life. You can try to escape them, much like Elimelech did, heading to Moab. Or you can enlist it. And he says, if we only endure our trials, then trials become our master. And we have a tendency to become hard and bitter. This is what Naomi was struggling with a bit. If we try to escape our trials, we will probably miss the purposes God wants to achieve in our lives through that trial. Yesterday at our um, Peacemaker Seminar, and I'm going to try to get this quote right, but it struck me because Brian Noble said, your conflicts, your struggles in life are the place where you have the greatest opportunity to experience the work of God. Something to that effect. So we can try to endure it. We can try to escape it. Or, he says, but if we will learn to enlist our trials, they will become our servants instead of our masters and work for us. And God will work all things together for our good and his glory. Naomi would have died in Moab had God not, God not intervened. Likewise, if God chose not to arrest and arouse us, we would perish, quote, in Moab. However, Jehovah speaks, sending awakening providences, sometimes as affliction and loss, sometimes in the form of his unmerited goodness, but in all situations, it is the kindness of God which leads us to repentance. So I think what we have to do at the end of a passage like this is say, God, is there anything I need to repent of? Is there any trial in my life that I'm trying to solve so practically that I don't give you any, any elbow room, any space? So as you think about your lives, whether they be fiscally difficult, emotionally troubling, spiritually questioning, you have family issues, work issues, whatever they might be, are we trying to so practically solve them that we've written God out of the equation? And I think Ruth tells us God wants to be at the center of our issues, our struggles, our pain, our suffering, and that we look to him and say, God, I want to repent of not giving you the space. I want to repent of my own willfulness, my own thoughts that I can control my life. And I want to serve you, and I want to love you with my whole heart, and I want to expectantly hold my hands out and say, God, what, what's the miracle you're going to do in my life? Do you realize you're not a candidate for a miracle until you have a problem? 
right? You can't see God's miracle if everything's good, hunky-dory, going fine. But it's the moment you have that crisis, that problem, that issue, that God says, oh, now you're a candidate for a miracle. Would you just let me do some work in your life? Broaden the boundaries of your questioning, of your struggle. Let me take the center. So let's pray together. And I invite you this morning, whether you have a wonderful, vibrant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, whether you are struggling a little bit in your faith, maybe having some doubts and questions, maybe it hasn't made as much sense lately, or whether you're visiting this morning and you're saying, I, I've, I've never really started that relationship with God. I think God wants you to know his love. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Ruth. Father, thank you that she was a woman who didn't cling to her culture, who didn't uh, live her life as though that was the essence of who she was. But she took enough time to pause in her thinking to recognize that what she saw in Naomi's life, even though there were only glimpses of it, and really what took front and center stage was the deaths of husbands and Elimelech, the struggle, the famine. But she saw enough of you that she repented of her past and said, God, I'm entrusting myself to you. And in doing so, I'm going to take care of this woman till death do us part. God, we want that kind of relationship in our lives. First of all, with you to experience this amazing, dedicated love. But also, God, we want to be the kind of people who pay it forward, who pay it out. Because you've given us that, you've, you've done that in our lives, we have the privilege of allowing the Holy Spirit who pours his love into our hearts of pushing it out to those around us. God, help us to be those kind of people because our world today in all of its chaos and struggle needs that bright, shining light in the midst of a period like Judges and a period like today to say that is the kind of person I want to be. That is the kind of God I want to worship. God, we ask you to do that work in our lives because we know you can. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.